Hello, my name is Nicola Wills and I am your host for this podcast, Inspire. Thank you so, so much for listening. Now, before we dive deep into interviewing our guests and learning all about their story, I want to openly share with you all mine. Now, I am not famous or a multimillionaire, but I do feel I have accomplished true success because, well, I'm happy. Some days more than others, but on the whole, I am really, really happy. But for me, most importantly, above everything, I actually really like myself. I value who I am. I have self-worth. But, oh my goodness, it has been such a journey to get to this point. And my biggest life lessons have actually just been in living my life. Now, I believe that as humans, if we can openly share these vulnerable moments, then others going through this at this very time can see that there is always hope and something positive to take away from the situation, even if at the time it really doesn't feel like it. Now, social media gives such a false impression of what life really looks like. In this podcast, we will show you behind that filter, the real authentic people who you might put on that pedestal, believing they have it all and they've got it all figured out. But trust me, they really, really don't. In fact, no one does. But what successful people do do is learn and grow through each obstacle, one day at a time. Looking back and connecting the dots, we are able to see that sometimes our hardest moments lead us, eventually, to in the right direction. We see success and nine times out of 10, we don't see the stories behind that, the personal journey someone's been on, the hardships and the sacrifices. But in this podcast, you will, warts and all. Now, I wanna to be totally honest with you, I have been dreaming of creating this podcast for at least eight years now. And unfortunately, it has taken my brother to pass away four months ago to really give me the kick up the arse to make this happen. And I have committed myself to never ever wait and take action on those nudges and those niggles that I have. So with each guest, I'm always gonna start with their biography. So let's start with mine. I am a mom of two healthy little girls, Minnie and Margot, and fiance to Ben. We live in Ibiza where I have always dreamed of living. I have a very, very successful online business with an amazing team of powerful and oh incredible women. Before this, I lived in London in um, for over 15 years, actually, pursuing a career in the performing arts. I've appeared in Fame in the West End on The X Factor, Britain's Got Talent. I've danced for Katy Perry and for Pink. And I earned a full scholarship to prestigious stage school, Arts Educational, gaining a 2-1 degree. Now, right, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? But let's look a little deeper. Let's look actually behind the scenes of what it took to get there. So let's start at the very beginning. I was born in the Midlands in Tamworth to my mum and dad. I'm the eldest of three children. And when I was 15 months old, my mum and dad, uh, my dad got a promotion and he moved down to Dorset where I spent my whole of my childhood. Within like two weeks of my mum actually moving, my mum went into early labour. She was pregnant with my brother Um, and he was born. His name was Graham and he was like, it was almost like we were twins because we're so close in age. Unfortunately, he was born premature, but had um, severely, severely disabled. We didn't really know at the time, but he had two holes in his heart and he had a very, very rare chromosome disorder. In fact, at that time, in 1984, there was only, he was one of 12 in the whole world that we actually knew about. 
Um, for six weeks of Graham's life, he had two holes in his heart that went completely undetected. Now, in that time, you know, obviously I, I didn't know anything. I was a baby, but now I am a mum to two children and I just can't even imagine how hard that must have been for my mum and my dad going through that, you know, thinking they're going to have a healthy little boy and then, you know, having to bring the vicar in to bless him because they thought that he was going to pass. Eventually he got moved to um, Southampton Hospital and they detected the two holes in his heart and he had open heart surgery at six weeks old. Now, after this, he did start to recover and get better. But what they didn't know was the severity of his um, rare chromosome disorder. And so they couldn't give any indication of what this tiny little baby was going to be, you know. So it was just a complete guessing game and taking every single day, one step at a time. Would he walk? Would he talk? Would he have a long life? Has he got any illnesses? They just didn't know. And... You know, I think when my mum actually eventually left hospital, he was born in the June and he um, left hospital in the October on my dad's birthday. They said to my mum, we we expect him to live to about five years old. And as I mentioned, obviously, at the beginning of this podcast, he lived till he was 38 and he did die uh, last October. But not of anything, actually, that he, he had. He lived an amazing, amazing life. And for me, like, obviously, I don't know any different. I only know what it's like to have grew up being the brother, sorry, the sister of a severely disabled brother. And you know what? I just think it's the biggest blessing that could ever have happened in my life. There are two two things that I have just lived by through Graham, and that is pass no judgment. And the second one is have absolutely no expectation and just take each day as it comes and be grateful for what you have. And just living by this, it's just, I just feel like it's just left me and my family with an open heart and just always just being just like in a really calm place because we knew that each day was a blessing. Now, growing up, obviously, when I was at school, everyone knew that I had had a Graham, like he was disabled. And this could have really affected me. I saw it actually affect other people. They they got bullied for having a disabled um, sibling. But for me, it really empowered me. My mum said something to us, which then really stuck with us. She said, these special children are sent to extra special families, the families that can really handle it. And Nicola, we can really handle this. And I was like, yes. And so I used to push my brother around in his yellow and um, yellow and black wheelchair. Like literally, I was just... It was like, I've got a Graham, you haven't got a Graham. How cool am I with my brother? And just that feeling and, you know, and, and again, growing up, it's led me through all parts of my life, like the inclusivity of everyone and making sure everybody is seen and heard. It's just been a huge, huge part. And so, you know, I guess like I owe this to you, Gray. <laughs> like, thank you for being such an inspiration for me. And I just hope that and you're watching and I just do you proud. Now, um, the dynamics in my family were that my mum stayed at home and had three children and my dad went out to work. Now, he, we did live in Dorset, which is a very like middle class area, but we were very much like the working class of the middle class area. So I kind of knew this, but I didn't really think about it. But there was one thing that really stood out to me that within our financial situation at home is that. Um, I would go shopping with my mum for the food shop and she loved going into Marks and Spencer and going in and treating herself to a per una, if you remember that, per una 
little bit of an outfit and you know we'd she'd try it on she'd feel so good I'd be, yeah mom that's amazing we'd go home and just as we were going into the door she'd say quickly quickly get the peruna bag and she'd stuff it in her handbag and she'd walk into the house I went what are you doing mom she went you don't let your dad see he'll tell me off for spending his money <gasps> and I think I was 12 and I remember that moment you know and I was just like what like sending his money and and she didn't have any of her own money right and you know and and if my mum could only spend money on the bills and the food shop and nothing else and again it was that specific moment in my life where I was like that will never ever ever be me and I have been so driven to be financially independent you know even if I was to go on to marry a multimillionaire there was no way that I was not having my own money in my own bank account so that I could do the things that I wanted to do and you know it really really having no financial you know money from my mum it really disempowered her you know like the relationship that my parents had there was no love there really for you know, I remember being 21 and she said to me, you know, Nicola, I just really want to leave your dad. Like, I'm not happy. You know, he doesn't notice me. And I saw this, you know, they were bickering all the time. And I said, why don't you just leave? And the reason she said, she said, well, I'm just scared. I'm just so full of fear. I have, I've got nothing of my own. Right. And so, and it took, it took my mum another 16 years after that conversation she built something for herself she had a little bit of her own money and the second she did she left my dad and she divorced my dad when he was 70 and she was um 59 and so that's like a massive deal but she was in a relationship with my dad with a man that she didn't really love she didn't want to be with but she was so stuck so my drive and mission to teach and help women just have it doesn't have to be much but something of your own um is just it's just so so powerful now, I have touched on my dad, and I don't want to like really paint him in a bad life a light. Sorry, because he wasn't a really bad man. He's not a bad man. He did he did his absolute best with what he had and what he knew, but the relationship that I had with him affected the rest of my life like you wouldn't believe. And I guess you see this in everyone, right? You know, oh, he's got daddy issues, and and I was like, oh, I haven't got that, but I definitely did have. So you know, growing up, I was it really into singing and dancing and acting and that was just my life like I just knew that's what I wanted to do and I would always do shows and be like dad watch me watch me and he never ever showed any interest you know get out of the way Nicola stop messing around Nicola you know I would do shows I would be the lead in the school shows he wouldn't come and watch me and even when even when I got fame in the West End and I went on for the lead role, which was like my dream, I was really good. I came out backstage and he did come and watch. Mum dragged him. Mum was like, Neville, Neville, what do you think? What do you think? And he was like, it was all right. And I just burst into tears. And Mum was like, what? how can you say that? She said, well, I don't want to praise her too much. She might get too big for her boots. <laughs> and you know, and you're just like, you know, and I was like 22, I'd been living my dreams, I was just on a lead in the West End show, and all I wanted was for him to say, oh Nicola, like you were amazing, I'm so proud of you, I loved you, and I just never, I just didn't get that from him, and now I know, because I've done the work, right, I've done the work, I know that's because he never received that from his parents, he didn't get any of that, but when I, you know, when I was 21, 22, I didn't know this, I was just so angry at him. And what that led on to, unfortunately, is 
a lot of relationships in my 20s you know i i felt quite confident as a performer but when it came to men oh my god i was just seeking approval and you know anyone that would come along that showed a bit of interest even if i didn't really like them even if we didn't really have any connection or i didn't fancy them i'd be like oh yeah, you know, let's go out, let's spend time together. Because I was just grateful that someone was interested. <laughs> like, I look back and think, what what were you doing? But that's that's where I was where I was at within my own self-worth regarding regarding boys and relationships. And, you know, I got myself into some terrible relationships and I would just be crying and he'd be treating me so badly. But I would always take him back, even if they cheated on me, because I was just grateful that someone was interested just crazy and obviously now i'm a mom of two little girls like the thing that i am going to instill into those tiny little humans is that you are enough you are amazing you don't need anyone's validation and you know and i'm going to pour and i do every ounce of my love into them i tell them every day how amazing they are i tell them how you know what the world is their oyster they can do all these things and they're three and four right because you know, what I have learned is that if you don't get that, the the life that these little girls are having now and the experiences they're having now, they are that is shaping their future. And I'm just so passionate to not have them go through the kind of shit that I went through in my 20s, just trying to feel loved and wanted and needed. So um, there are two moments in my life that growing up, again, so much of this is always growing up, isn't it? So two moments in, in my life that I can look back and and it's really based on my career that someone told me no and I was driven to prove them wrong. And now I want to share these with you all because there might be someone listening who is, you know, on the road to making their dreams come true and they might hear something from someone and that knocks them back and they think that their opinion is real. Right. And I want to show you no one opinion is real other than your own and what you believe in yourself and what you believe is possible for you. So age 12, I was all singing and all dancing, going to a great dancing school. And I said to my mum, like, this is the career I want. Like, I want to be in the West End. Like, I want to be, you know, musical theatre. And she said, OK, cool. Let's you know talk to your dancing teacher about it. So I had a little meeting with my dancing teacher after a lesson one time. And she sat down and my mum went, you know, so Nicola, you know, wants to do this. Like, what do you think? Um, and this dancing teacher said to me, well, you know, I think, you know, she's got a good voice. She might make the West End, but she'd never make it in the West End as a dancer. <laughs> Imagine telling a little girl who's 12, who's got like dreams of being on stage. She'll never make it in the West End as a dancer. And knowing what I know now, you know, like 50%, less than 40% is talent and the rest is hard work. Like, it, it just blew my mind. But it was a driver for me. It was a catalyst. It was like, how freaking dare you tell me that? Now, you know, my mum wasn't a pushy mum. So my mum would have conversations with me like, Nick, oh, you know, do you really think you can make this? Do you really think you can do this? You know, your dance teacher said that this, 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 and only that I was so focused and so driven did that I not I not I didn't let that affect me one tiny bit in fact it drove me it was like that negative driver and then I had the same thing again happen so when I was 17 I actually stayed on at school I mum felt I was too young to go away to stage school at 16 so I stayed on to do my A-levels I really didn't want to but I did it anyway you know I was like you know, getting 
getting some education behind me. So I was doing my A-levels and at this time it was like the time to audition for all the stage schools, right? And so I sat down with my careers teacher, as you do having the career talk. And my mum came in, you know, talking about university and what you're going to do. She sat down, she said, so Nicola, you know, what's your plan? Like, what are you going to do when you, when you leave school? And I said, so I'm going to audition for a stage school. I'm going to get in, I'm going to get a scholarship and then I'm going to be on the West End and then I'm going to go and be a movie star. She was like, oh. and I was like, what, what? And she was like, oh, Nicola, come back down to earth. You know, like this is, you know, you're such a dreamer, aren't you? And I remember thinking, what is she talking about? And I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, this, this is be great, but let's be realistic. I mean, the word I hate the most, let's be realistic, you know, um, cause it is quite a lot, it costs quite a lot of money to be able to go to these stage schools. And I said, yeah, I know, like, I, I know my mom couldn't afford that. So that's why I have to get a scholarship. She's like, yeah, but the chances are very, very slim. And I was like, I know, but why not? Like, I know that I can do this. And she literally laughed in my face and said, well, I think we should just look at alternative options for maybe university or going to like a college. And well, I mean, she was speaking to the wrong person. I The rage went through me. Like it was like hot fire. I was like, ah! I stood up, I pushed that table back to her and she was like in shock. I told her where to go and I stormed out. I wasn't crying. I was just, you know, in anger that someone can, you know, have this much say and, you know, control. And again, I would always think, how many people that have had this experience have been told to be realistic, not to dream too big, and then all of their dreams and things that sit inside them, they've gone, oh, okay. Well, Miss Smith at school said, you know, that I probably shouldn't do that, so I'm not going to do that. You know, and so thank goodness I didn't listen to her because I you know I did work really really hard I auditioned for five stage schools I got into four of them with a full scholarship you know and I was like fuck you <laughs> two fingers up to them like watch this space so then I went on and I moved to London when I was 18 from my little village Corfmullen to to London and I lived I ended up going, living in Chiswick which obviously I now know is an amazing part of London so blessed that I ended up there and I went to this stage school called Arts Educational three years at Arts Ed doing a musical theatre degree. And, you know, I would love to share with you all that it's just like, you know, rainbows and fairies and exciting. But at the time, it, it well, well, it wasn't like that at all. Their way of teaching, that, don't get me wrong, there were some times where it was really great, but their way of teaching was, let's bring her down, let's bring her down, let's bring her down so she can get and fight and get not, you know, get back up again. And, um, I just didn't respond very well to this. Like they made me cut my hair. They told me that I was fat. <laughs> they, you know, called me a little bit podgy. Um, it was just a really, a not a nice experience. Um, and kind of mental health wasn't really a thing back then. You know, no, no one really spoke about that. And it, well, of course it was a thing, but it was really, really like, you know, you don't want to have issues. And I definitely did, especially in my second year, I was on the phone to my mom, walking home, crying and crying, crying. So I want to leave. I hate it. They're so horrible to me. And, um, and it was only that I actually had a boyfriend at outside that definitely he kept me there because it was like, you know, he was just like, just stay, babe, come on, you know, we can just be together. And so I kind of mumbled my way through. I never really stepped into my light 
and was all that I could be in those three years at all. I always felt like I was on the back foot. Like I think, yeah, I'm doing something good. And someone say, no, you're not. That's not very good, Nicola. And, you know, they never built me up. In fact, I'm going to be totally honest with you here. The kind of main teacher that like, that was part of it all. I actually, <laughs> I used to dream. I used to say to my mum, one day when I'm on stage, I'm receiving an award. I'm going to call him out on how horrible he was to me and be like, look at me now. Because that's how really, you know, that's how horrible it was at the time. Do you know what I'm sure now, you know, the whole mental health movement and everything like that, people being more awake, I th I'm sure it has changed. But back then, it was not the way. Anyway, in my third year, we, I'd got through and I got through my third year and I was in a dance class and uh, the lady said to me, so Nicola, you know, what do you want to be? What's your dream role? And I said, oh, my dream role is Eponine in Les Mis. And she literally laughed at me. She's like, darling, you can do without your fake tan and nails. And, you know, that is who I am. Like, I love glamming up. I love a tan. I love a nails. love an extension. But obviously, as an actress, I will, you know, you change all those things and, you know, you, you play the part, right? And I was like, what? No, of course I changed. She was just like, oh, you're kidding yourself, honey. You're kidding yourself. And, um, oh, just like livid. Anyway, what went on to happen? And, you know, something I'm so proud of. I was the first girl in my year to get a job in the West End in fame. And I actually told all my teachers and everyone knew and they didn't say, well done. They didn't say, you know, this is incredible. It was almost like, oh God, how she got that. That was a bit like they were shocked that it wasn't like the other girls that should have got it. Um, and I was so miffed by that, that I actually didn't go to my own graduation. On the, I was just like, fuck you. I'm not going to go. You know, you didn't support me. I don't want to be there. I regret that now. You know, it was my graduation, not theirs. I should have gone. But you know, I was kind of full in full swings in rehearsal with fame. And I just thought, I don't want to be around that negativity anymore. So there I am, 21 years old, in the West End, living my dream, thinking, I've made it. Oh, it was just everything. And for the first six months, it was. And then for the last six, the, the second half of the contract, I, you know, started to get you know, comfortable in, in, in everything. But I started to really have self-doubt. I was really strict with myself. Back then, I didn't drink. I didn't, like, go out. But what I did is I really isolated myself. I, I, don't, I don't know why, to be completely honest. But again, it is, I, I wish I'd never done this because it made my whole experience within the West End really, really lonely. I didn't see any of my friends from Arts Ed. Um, I don't, didn't hang out with any of the, like, the crew like, or any of the cast afterwards because it was almost like I felt a lot of pressure to be amazing. And so I would kind of, I, I came a bit of a robot. I'd like go in, I'd do the show, I'd finish the show, go home. No life outside of that. And, and when I finished that experience of that year's contract, I actually said to myself, do you know what, I, I don't want to do that anymore. And, and I, I, I said, I don't want to do the West End. That wasn't my dream, I, I finished it. Um, um, but I, what I did want to do, and this is like the next part of my journey, I was like, I don't want to be Elaine Page. I want to be Britney Spears. So for the early part of my 20s, I was actually in a girl band, a girl band called Fallen Angels. 
da-da, with his head. Um, we did uh, X Factor, and we also had our own TV show called Singing with the Enemy, which was on ITV2. Um, and I was in that band with a, a very well-known face um, that you all know called Molly King. Now, this experience for me was, oh, it was just so good. This was the poorest I have ever been in my whole life. We were unsigned as a girl band. Um, so everything we had to fund ourselves. Um, and I would work at the weekend because I was in the in and out of the studio all during the week. And then at the weekend, I would work um, at Hammersmith Apollo <laughs> um, being a shot girl for the school disco. This is kind of showing my age now. And I'd be like in a, a red PVC outfit, like doing taquita. And I would earn like, you know, a water cash that would then support me through that week. I lived like that for two years. Sometimes I would have like a pound to my name and I'd be like, it doesn't matter. I'm living my dream in London in a girl band. Everything will always work out. Um, the band never really took off. We had some terrible songs. But I had an amazing experience from that. And then Molly went on to audition for the Saturdays and then was in the Saturdays. And then I left and then I went on to pursue a career more in the like commercial dance sector. That's kind of where I just felt like I, I really belonged. And it was just so exciting. And that's when I was doing music videos, dancing at the European Music Awards. And it was just an amazing time. Now, let's talk about boys. <laughs> well, I, in my 20s, I had no clue what a healthy, loving, kind relationship looked like, like not, no idea. So I kind of went in and out of boys and you know, no one was really serious. And then I remember hitting like 25, 26 and I was with the girls. We were all dance, like podium dancing at the time. And we were talking about how, earth, how on earth are we ever gonna get out of this kind of living hand to mouth situation? And the answer was find a rich man. Like that's, that's the answer girls, you know? We were dancing for 80 pound a night on podium like um, at clubs called Movida, um, China White, Whiskey Mist. So, you know, we were working in the evenings, but there was no way of getting out of that cycle fast. And in the daytime, we would do auditions for, you know, like big music videos and world tours and stuff. So that was our life. And I was like, how, how is this going to, you know, happen? And so it was like, right, okay, rich guy, I need to find a rich guy that's going to pluck me from obscurity and rescue me like some some damsel in distress and that was my focus and uh, you know it, I'm it's like so embarrassing to actually think that but that is the conversations that we had so I remember we all had this remember thinking right it's either a Porsche a Ferrari or a Range Rover if he doesn't drive those cars we're not interested well obviously what you think about, you bring about. I didn't know about that then, but this is exactly what I attracted. This guy with a Range Rover. He wasn't kind to me. He wasn't nice to me. Uh, I didn't really even fancy him, to be honest. But he bought me things. He bought me shoes, Louboutins. He bought me um, Louis Vuitton handbags. He took me to fabulous restaurants, took me to New York. I mean, it was like the princess fairy tale dream that I'd always, you know, thought, oh my God, this is it. But he treated me like shit. He didn't speak to me very kindly. He barely spoke to me at all. I was definitely like the trophy on his arm. Um, and eventually he said to me, like, don't do that anymore. Don't do podium dancing. Don't do this, don't do this. So I was actually left with like no money, not, nothing of my own. Uh, what he did introduce me to, which was actually really, you know, a real catalyst in my life was that he had a flat in Ibiza. 
and he had a yacht in Ibiza in the marina. So we would spend a lot of time here in Ibiza. And I remember thinking, God, this place is amazing. But I was so bitterly unhappy with him. But I just thought, if I want this life, this is what I have to put up with to have it. And I know it seems crazy now, like even saying that, but that is what I, that is what I actually thought I had to do. Um, it got to the point where I didn't even know what color I liked. I couldn't choose things for myself. You know, it was quite a heavy, like drug environment. And I, it was just like the norm to be around that. And then in the evening we'd always go out for dinner and I didn't even, he didn't even let me choose my own dinner. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll order for you. And I guess at the beginning you think, oh, that's so nice. But it got to the point of like insane control. And there was this one time, this one moment where I was on the boat, just sunbathing in the marina and my friend messaged me. Hey Nicola, how are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? I was like, oh, hi. I'm just on the boat, just sunbathing. Um, he was off working and she was like, oh babe, you are living the dream life that we always wanted. And in that moment, I cracked. I had, it was like, it was like this lightning bolt went through my body and I cracked, I opened up, I cried, I cried. I was like wailing on the front of, on his boat. Like, no, no, I'm, I was like, you have no idea. You do not understand. I'm so unhappy. And that was my, the biggest enough moment I've ever had in my life. I remember looking around and I was kind of like disgusted with myself that I'd got to this point. And I was like, Nicola, if you ever want anything in life, whether it be to live in Ibiza, the handbags, the shoes, the choice, the freedom, you do not go looking for that outside of you. You have enough within you to make these things a reality for yourself. And it was just like the phoenix rising within my body and I was set alight, I was on fire. And it did take a while to be able to get out of that relationship because obviously old habits die hard and I was, I mean, I was a mess, like convulsing. And I had to ask my parents for, you know, some money just to like help me get set, you know, set back up. And I, I moved in with a friend, but it was just the beginning of actually that real next, next chapter in my life. So from that, I actually created a girl group called Girls Rock. Now we went on Britain's Got Talent. We were in the live semi-finals, and we had an amazing time. We had so many opportunities come from that. There was five of us girls and we all did like fire breathing and dancing. And in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the English version of the Pussycat Dolls. I've created this, woohoo. Um, and it was, it, that only came from that horrendously negative situation. And, you know, but at the time I couldn't see that. I couldn't see the next day and how that was going to happen. So Girls Rock happened and for three years oh, we were living the dream. We were jetting off to Dubai, jetting off to Lebanon, doing shows here and there. And it was amazing. I have a huge regret though and I want to share this with you all. And I actually, like part of me, I really hope that the girls can listen to this because I messed up. So, you know, yeah, I did create this and it was my idea and, and everything, but I kept it to myself. The girls said to me, you know, Nick, we'd all like to be involved, like equally split, five business partners making this happen. And I was so tight and felt like, you know, like I couldn't have this taken away from me. That I was just like, no, no, no. And, and I cut them out 
and, and I mean, they were still within the group, but I was, I made myself like the boss and these were all like my best friends at the time. And eventually what then happened is it, it just fell apart it, and, and it fell apart because I didn't allow others to be part of it. I didn't allow them to, you know, be partners and create something together. And, you know, it totally broke our friendship and relationship. And I just wish if they're hearing this now, like, that I'm really sorry and I wish I could go back and change things because I really valued your friendship and our time together was just so amazing. So what then happened is then I turned 30 within this time and actually I am coming up to my 40th birthday. So on reflection, my 30th birthday was just a really sad time. So my girls from the girl group weren't really talking to me. I you know, I'd kind of pushed away my like friends from art set. I don't really know why, but I just wasn't, I was just always onto the next thing, onto the next thing. And I didn't really value and treasure my relationships. And I was single. I was living in a rented flat in a rented, or a rented room in a rented house in a not very nice part of London. And I just remember on my 30th birthday, like really crying and really just thinking, oh God, like, I remember scrolling through social media, Facebook, and everyone at the time was getting engaged or married or having a baby. And I was like, when's it going to be me? Like, what about me? When When's my time going to come? When am I going to have all of this thing? And and I remember, what did I even do for my 30th? I think I, I, that's how insignificant it was because I didn't have people around me that celebrated me, that loved me, that lifted me up. Um... I'm sure they were there, but I just didn't look after and nurture those friendships and relationships. So it just was pretty, pretty crappy time, really. So if you are in your 30s listening to this, like, know that it does change and, and things really change for me quickly. So my best friend from um, Art Said called me up and he was like, Nicola, I've come across this opportunity it's going to change our lives. Like it's going to be the best thing ever. And I was so skeptical because obviously I'd only ever known performing. I only ever wanted to be a performer, singing, dancing and acting. I had no clue really about running a business or anything in wellness. And he was like, don't worry, they're going to teach us everything that this is our exit strategy because he he is also a performer or was also a performer as well. This is our exit strategy out of that life. And I was like, oh God. And it took me ages to get my head around it. But what he showed me and introduced me to was personal development and business development. And so I read two books that changed my life. Like without these books, I would not be where I am today. So those books, the first one was called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by a guy called Robert Kiyosaki. And that really showed me that my family, I'd grown up in a very poor mindset family regarding money. Um, you know, it was, money was always the root of all evil. Money doesn't go on trees. You know, all this kind of mindset was in money. It was for other people and not for us. And so that's why I never had any. Um, and also to, you know, have true wealth that you didn't want to like work an hour, get paid now. You wanted to create something. So I, I kind of learned that through that book. And then the other book was The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. Now this is a classic book uh, that really teaches you all about the law of attraction, um, about creating vision, vision boards, about visualization, about manifesting, and um, the bit that kind of does miss out of it is the action to do that. But I was really action orientated. I was like a real hard worker. So I read these two books and coupled together, I was like, okay, 
I can do this. I needed to change almost every aspect of my life and I was willing to do whatever it took. And I did. It took me two and a half years to get to my financial goal, which was um, of earning £10,000 every single month with my online business. And, you know, I have been, I have met and surrounded myself with some of the most empowered, positive, inspiring women and men that without them and without their like guidance and mentorship, I would not be here where I am today. So, in that two and a half years of building my business, I was going on quite a lot of dates and they were always really rubbish. And I was like learning about myself and becoming more confident. And it was about two years into my business, I said to Stuart, you know what, I'm going to stop going on these dates because I am not going to meet the man of my dreams until I become the woman of my dreams. I don't know when that's going to be, but I know I will know. And then what actually happened on the 31st of August, I hit this financial goal and this like position within my organization. I was like, I woke up the next day, the 1st of September. I was like, I felt amazing. I felt established. I felt unstoppable. It was just like this full self-empowered moment of like, I've got my shit together. And I I felt good. I actually read something um, just recently that said that you to gain self-worth, you've really got to go through hard times and do hard things. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, growing my business those two and a half years were the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. It was it was blood, sweat and a lot of tears to get to that point. And um, and with that, I really was like. I can do this. And I it was just this amazing feeling of. I am of value and I valued myself. And I guess in that time, I became the woman of my dreams, right? Because what then happened is 29 days later from hitting that goal, I met Ben, my future husband, my fiance, the baby daddy. Now, Ben is tall, handsome, gorgeous, well brought up like really into conservation and animals, like so kind. I mean, the dream man for any girl, right? Um, And he took my headshots, because he was a photographer at the time, for um, like the Hall of Fame part of my business that I needed. And I remember like meeting him and he took my picture and I was like, oh my gosh, he's absolutely gorgeous. But I didn't feel insignificant towards him. And, And before, every other every other time I would have felt like less than like oh oh god and you know not knowing what to say and felt awkward but I just held held my own and I didn't care if he liked me or if he didn't like me I was just being me living my best life and I guess it showed right because then what happened is I went home that night and he messaged me he's like hey looking so beautiful in your pictures and I was like sick this is definitely the line that he uses to shout out every girl and he's like sleeping with everyone ignore next day hey don't you got my last message but this picture's really nice and I was like oh ignore no I'm not gonna be one of those girls and then he asked me out on a date and I said oh I just kind of like pied him off like I'm not gonna go on that date anyway two weeks later he kept you know chatting and probing and chatting and then two weeks later I had to fly up to, Gla- fly up to Glasgow for a meeting I said you know yeah, I'm at this meeting I'm gonna fly back he's like, oh what terminal I was like oh Heathrow terminal five so like, okay have a good flight I land I walk out of the terminal and he's there waiting for me with a rose in a purple zip up hoodie. I remember it so clearly. 
like smiling, looking a bit like, oh, nervous. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, hi. Bearing in mind, I hadn't seen him since the day he took my pictures. Like it was that, that time span, that was like three weeks. And I was like, hi. And he said, listen, I'm 35 year old man. I've been around long enough. I know what I want. And when I want it, I'm gonna go out and get it. And I was like, <laughs> like, obviously, like, oh my God. We like kissed there and then in Heathrow Terminal 5. And we then spent like three hours in one of the bars. I think it was called George. I actually have been past it a few times. Like, oh. um, in one of the bars in Heathrow Terminal 5, because then he was jetting off to Africa to um, take pictures in Africa for a, a brand for three for three weeks. No, sorry, four weeks. And so we had like three hours together in the, in this bar. And I mean, God, if you'd have been there a, a spectator, we were literally like dry humping on the sofa like midday but we were just so it was just this passion it was just this excitement it was just i'd never felt anything like that before and and for the first time it was like a guy had come to me he'd chosen me i was his one whereas before it was like any guy even like sniffed my way i was like hi and i made it so easy and i was so available for every everyone you know and it was this time where i was like i've got I am full of self-love and self-worth that I attracted my vision board man. And I'll share with you uh, the pictures of what that vision board was because at the time when we took a picture and then we compared it to the vision board, it's like identical. I'll show that with you. So what then happened very quickly, our relationship progressed. So I was pregnant within six months and then we were engaged within 10 months. Uh, we had two babies. Minnie and Margot, literally 15 months apart. It was an intense time in our life, but it was just, oh, it was just like amazing. Um, and then I decided to do something very different to what my parents had done. So obviously, you know, we didn't have very much money growing up. I didn't go on a plane till I was 12. And then when we did, we were staying in like friends, like apartments, you know, it wasn't like a holiday holiday. And I just remember saying, thinking, oh, you know, when I grow up, I really want to be able to just travel the world with my babies. And that is exactly what I did. So on um, New Year's Eve, Minnie was two and Margot was seven months old. So like basically two tiny babies. Uh, we booked a seven week trip. So first of all, we were going to Disneyland, then we're going to Maui, then we're going to Miami and then finishing up in Mexico. And it was a real full circle moment because it was New Year's Eve and I was pushing my girls um, in their prams and I was doing a little live on Instagram saying, oh, you know, this is what I was doing. And oh God, I got so choked up. like. I just was like, oh my gosh, because five years previous to that video on New Year's Eve, I was in a smelly, stinky club about to dance on a podium for £80. They wouldn't pay us any more because they knew that we were desperate for the money. And I, and when the clock strike 12 and everyone's going wild outside and I'm in the kitchen with all the drunk dickheads, I just vowed to myself, I was like, Nicola, you can't be in this position ever again. You have to do something to change your life. And then five years later, I'm engaged with two babies about to jet off for a seven week trip. So, you know, five years at the time, when you think about it, it feels such a long time, but it really, really isn't. Like that time is going to go anyway. So you might as well like do something good, you know, for that. Now, I just want to quickly share something with you, because if you do follow me on Instagram or TikTok, you will think, oh, my gosh, Nicholas, like this earth mother, she just loves being a mum. And now I do now. But before I became a mum, 
bit of a confession here. In my 20s, I actually had two dogs at two separate times, David and Rodney, and I was so bad at looking after them that they had to go back and live with my parents in Dorset because I just couldn't look after them. I was just terrible. And, you know, I wouldn't take them for walks. I'd forget to feed them. And so obviously when I was like pregnant, my friends would say to me, you know, Nick, I think you, you know, should really, really definitely get a nanny. I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to get a nanny. Um, and I'm definitely, I'm never going to push. That is disgusting. I'm not going to push a baby out of my vagina. I'm going to have C-section. Like I had it all planned out. And then I became pregnant. And as the months went on, it was like this feeling of like pure womanhood, pure like supergirl powers. And I actually decided, do you know what? I I think I'm gonna like give this pushing it out a go. And so I did. And so what happened is I booked myself um, a home birth. And obviously I was very, very lucky. I had a really great, um, like a uh, healthy pregnancy and I know that is just such a blessing in itself but I was open like we live two minutes from the ho- from the hospital but I was like right let's just see if we can do this at home I believed in myself and I believed in my body and I think sometimes that's what from my friends they didn't they were like in fear that something's going to go wrong or they didn't trust herself but I just trusted my body that she knew not Nicola the brain not Nicola the person my female body knew what to do now I heard this story and I hope that this helps someone listening to this so I read this story plus having a bath and it was a, a book about um hypnobirthing and I read this story saying this lady was in a car accident and she was br- uh, basically dead and they kept her uh, alive because she was nine months pregnant and she was there on monitors not doing anything the clinically dead and her body went into labor and she labored, basically dead, but lay with the baby without even being alive. And as soon as she gave birth and then they turned them on to soft, she died and the baby was alive. And so I was like, oh my God, I don't need to do anything. I just need to be, I just need to back myself actually and believe that I can do it and trust my female powers to do so. Now, I loved being in labor, not really the first part, but the pushing part. And people are like, oh my God, you're so crazy. Yes, it did hurt, right? But in that moment, when my body was contracting and pushing out my babies, I have never, I felt like superwoman. It was like, I was like, like screaming and raging. And Ben was next to me. He was like, you've got it. You've got it. And the midwife was saying to me, good woman, good woman. And I birthed these two beautiful, healthy little girls with no intervention, with no medication, with nothing. It was just by myself. And, you know, if I could go back and do that again, I would just have, I would have like 10, 20 children. I wasn't really keen on the actual pregnancy itself. But, you know, if if you're listening to that and there's part of you that would like that experience, definitely give like be open to giving it a go. And I think the key in that is having the confidence and knowing yourself that you can do this. So let me share with you all how I ended up living in Ibiza. So when I was 15 years old, my mum and dad brought um, us on holiday to Ibiza and we stayed in Escanar at the Miami Hotel and I met a boy here. Um, It was a bit of a holiday romance. His name was Matou and he took me, I mean, he was so like exotic. I think he was like French, Belgian or something. He took me um, to Dolt Vila, which is like old town here in Ibiza. And he took me right up to the top and we sat on, on like the wall looking out over old town and whilst he you know 
tried to get his hand in my pants. I was like, no way, definitely not. What actually happened was I had a moment and it wasn't with him. He brought me there, but it wasn't with him the moment is that it started to go dark and then the lights on in Aretha Old Town lit up and it just came alive and it was like, it was just this magical, sparkly place. And I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. And in that moment, when I was 15 years old, sat at the top of Dot Vila, I was like, this is my home. I knew that one day, somehow I would end up there. And it was actually, um, because of COVID, you know, we were in lockdown in our house. And I'm going to share with you, you know, by this time of, of our life, Ben, myself, Minnie and Margot, we had amazing, like six bedroom, basically mansion in Gerard's Cross. We had the Maserati, we had the G-Wagon, we had all the stuff, right? And so lockdown wasn't that bad, but I had this feeling within me that I wanted to get away, get away, I need to get away. And it was, we went, we really were lucky to escape the second lockdown. We were actually in Mexico and we extended our stay in Mexico and we stayed in Mexico for eight weeks. And in Mexico, we were living in a three bedroom, like very normal apartment. Uh, we hired bikes every day and we were off bike riding and walking to the beach. And in that time, Ben and I, we were like, oh my gosh, we're so much happier here. Living like stripped back, like the sun's out with a palm tree then all of the stuff and things that we have at home, that didn't mean anything. Like actually we've got ourselves to this position having all this stuff because it is what on paper you do when you have money, right? And we decided like, this is the time more than ever. We really, my whole business was online. It was just like, if we're ever gonna move to Ibiza, now is the time. So we came back from uh, Mexico and within six weeks from arriving back home we flew to Ibiza. Now we got rid of everything. We sold or gave away to charity and you know the money that we made we gave to uh, charity. Everything. The cars, the stuff, the toys, the playroom, the bed, the house, everything. And we moved to Ibiza with nine suitcases and we had to pay for an apartment that we'd never seen because we couldn't come here because of lockdown. We paid for an apartment we'd never seen on, on a wing and a prayer. And I'm not going to lie, the night before we were due to, to fly was hell. The like uncertainty and my comfort zone for Ben and I, we sat in bed like holding hands, almost rocking because of the fear what have we done? Oh my God. It was like the sick was under my chin. It's the only way I can describe it. It was like, ugh. and we, there was no going back now. We'd sold everything. Like we didn't even have a house living from the next day. We had to go to Ibiza and oh, it was awful. We got in you know, the next day we woke up, we barely slept. We got in the cab to go to the airport and Francis Stewart's um, husband met us and he helped us with the bags and we were just bawling. We were uncontrollable. And it wasn't because of what we were, there was no like, oh, you know, we're leaving our parents behind or anything like that because we knew everyone could come and visit. But it was like, it was, it was our bodies wanted to stay in the comfort and we have, we totally smashed that. <laughs> and, you know, when we got here for the first month or so, I'm not going to lie, um, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Ben was really upset and he was like, we've made a wrong decision. We need to go back. This is awful. And then within the first few months, we also got COVID and Ben had it so bad. And it isn't really, you know, when you're away from home in those times, 
life's amazing when it's all sun and rainbows and you're healthy but when you're not well and you live in a foreign country away from your friends and family that people that would look look after you it was really tough he was like on the sofa like just not almost passing out and I'd have to take the girls out of the house just to not see their dad in that state and we had no one here so you know Abitha is always an amazing idea but sometimes it doesn't feel at the time like it is now you know looking back on reflection two years of being here is the best move that we have ever 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 made and so the lesson in that is if you've got something within you that desire you know, it never left me even in the middle of the night when I was like feeding my children in living in London I would be on Idealista which is basically like um, right move but for Spain looking at properties in Ibiza like one day one day and so you will know when that time is right so make sure you listen to that and take action on doing that. I want to share with you all something that living in Ibiza a hard time here so like I said before um, the only time really that it's it's really difficult is when you need to be back home or you're ill here. And last year, uh, on the 23rd of June, I got the call from my mum saying, Nicola, your brother's only got hours to live. And this was on a Thursday. And that call, it was just, it just shook me. And uh, we knew that he was sick. So he'd been diagnosed with a fatty liver, which then proceeded on to him having liver failure. And we knew that he will die eventually of liver failure. If he was normal without his severe disabilities, he would have had a liver transplant because he was only 38, but this wasn't an option for him. So we knew at some point this would happen. And so she called me, like they've given him hours to live. His carers went into his bedroom in the morning. There was blood all over the walls where he'd been projectile vomiting blood throughout the night and no one had heard him. And you know, you're just like, how can I not be there? And you know, I always believe, you know, even in these hard times, the universe has always got my back. It's always watching out for me. So I went online and there was one flight in and out from Ibiza to Bournemouth once a week. And that flight was about to take off in two and a half hours from that phone call that I had from my mum. So I moved heaven and earth, paid whatever it was, and I was on that flight. And it was such a surreal feeling because obviously everyone on the flight is so excited and, you know, so full of joy from their holiday. And there I am, like trying to just, you know, not even catch eye contact with people because I was just about to burst into tears. I landed in Bournemouth, went straight to the hospital and, you know, was there with my brother. Now, fortunately, and I really feel like because, you know, all his family, we gathered around him. It was like he came back to life. You know, he was like on paper they were like we're not going to give him another blood transfusion he was bleeding out of both ends they were like he will just slip away but he stopped bleeding and he just held his own and and every day was a new day and he got up and every, it was just it was an amazing experience and you know for two weeks I stayed there with my sister and my brother and he came out of hospital and we just had so many wonderful fun amazing experiences going down to Bournemouth Beach together and just being there and then in August, I brought my girls over as well. And we had two weeks of solid family beach time with my brother because we knew it could, you know, that thing could happen any at any point. And it did. October the 4th, actually October the 3rd, I got a call from my mom saying they've taken Graham into hospital. Um, he's bleeding again, but you know what he's like. He's going to pull through it. And because we'd had that experience of him pulling through it, I didn't have that, oh my God, I need to get back home. We were like, oh God, he's going to be fine. And 
the next day I woke up, I was like, how is he? He's like, yeah, you know, he's, he's chattering away. Like he didn't speak, but he used to make this noise like, do we do we do we do we do we do and I could hear him and I thought oh, he's you know I've gone grey in your little ledge like really being fine and people were you know there like around his bedside and I thought oh you know I'll see how he is tomorrow and maybe I'll go tomorrow and tomorrow never come this was October the 4th 2022 and um my mum called at like half past nine she said I you know they've just come in and said to the, us that he's not going to make it through the night and I was like what like he was he was fine they're like yeah his all his the vitals are slipping and then and they they can't do anything to bring him back they're just going to make him comfortable and I was like oh! and there was no way that I could get there and I just didn't didn't believe it um and then I went I said okay okay and just kind of thought oh it'll be fine it'll be fine and then about half an hour later a text message which I'm actually annoyed about because it was a text message Graham's gone from my sister and I was like what and I just didn't believe I just didn't believe it and I was like I need to video call you I need to see him I'm like I, this isn't right and so as crazy as it sounds I've got my mum and sister on video time to my brother who's peacefully lying there and gently you know going slightly grey and like I had to see that he's actually died because it just didn't seem real and the next day, obviously, I flew home. The flights to Ibiza and Bournemouth in winter don't exist, so I had to fly into Bristol. And then my sister picked me up, and it was just like, oh, it was just, it was just so sad. And although I think you know, people might be like, oh, well, you know, he had disabilities. Yes, he did, but it doesn't make it any easier. And especially for my mum losing a son, like you never expect to lose a child. Um, you know, whether they're perfectly fit and able or severely disabled so it was yeah it was all a bit of a blur and my mum you know was in a, yeah, it was just not nice but then something then happened so prior to all of this I had that year you know in 2022 been looking into getting surgery on my body so I had really disfigured boobs if you've seen in my Instagram you've seen them <laughs> terrible um, I had a really bad stomach from my over like dietus recti it's called and I was just really, really unhappy with my body. And instead of moaning about it, you know, I was eating well, I was exercising, I was like, I'm gonna do something about it. And so I booked in for a full mummy makeover, but this full mummy makeover was booked in on the Saturday after the Tuesday that my brother passed in, in Turkey, like it's a hub of like cosmetic surgery. And I was like, oh God, I called them up and I said, look, this is what's happened. I'm not gonna be able to make it. And they're like, Nicola, there's nothing we can do. You're going to lose all your money, which is fine, but we're not going to be able to get you booked in until at least March next year. And so I sat down with my mum and sister and I was like, I just feel like I just really want to go. Like, you know, and my sister's like, cool, Nick, we can do this together. Like, Graham would want this for you, you know. And in my head, I didn't think it was going to be that much of a big deal, if I'm completely honest. But we got on that flight to Turkey on the Friday and we arrived and we were okay it felt like we me and my sister were just like this little bubble and and Graham was protecting us and all the noise was just like we blocked that out and we got there we got to the apartment and then we got to the um like the, the hospital and it was really triggering for my sister because my sister had been really hands-on with my brother in hospital so she was in hospital and it was oh god it was awful and I just was thinking oh god like kept kind of justifying to myself it'd be fine it'd be fine anyway 
that night I went down to the theatre. My Emily couldn't come with me. She's like, I can't see you in that way. So I said, don't worry, we're going to be fine. So I went down and I sat in the operating theatre on my own. And I was just pulling my eyes out. And they were all speaking Turkish. They're like, okay, okay. And I just said to them, just please don't let me die. Please don't let me die. Now, I'd had loads of operations before. I'd been put to sleep loads of times. And I know it's like one of the safest things ever. But I just felt so scared that I was going to go to sleep and never wake up again. And before I knew it, I woke up, had the surgery, and the pain was so intense. It was like nothing from like my knees to my neck, like everything hurt. I couldn't even lift my body up because they'd stitched my stomach muscles back together and I was lying there. And um, they gave me this really, really strong painkillers, which although numb the pain, they played with my mind. I had the most intrusive thoughts. I was like, I'm going to die. The hospital's going to be bombed. This is the end of the world. It was just awful. My sister came in and obviously she saw me like that and burst into tears. She was like, how can you do this to me? Like, I feel like I'm going to lose you. And my brother's just died. You're gonna... Oh God, it was just so sad. And I, I really, if I could go back now, I would never have done it then. I really wouldn't. And the following six weeks after that were hell. My body was hurting. I felt like I was, I was such a burden to everybody else. I couldn't really help so much with the funeral because I was recovering. We had my brother's funeral four weeks later and it was only like mid-November. It was like six weeks after everything that I just, it was like this one day I woke up and I just felt this cloud lift. And it was like, oh, actually, everything's okay. Like, you're not such a bad person for doing that. I started to see the results in my body. I started to feel comfortable and confident in who I was again. And that, my, you know, I like would maybe wear a swing gosh, a bikini again and all these little things. And it was like, okay, you know, and although it was such a terrible time, now, four months after that, it's like the best decision of my life because I feel so confident and so happy in my body and my physique. But that oh god, I'm so dry. That at that time, I if I could change it, and I you know I say this to my mum and my sister, like I'm sorry that I put you through that, and it was really selfish of me. And if I could change it, I would. But I feel good now, and I hope that you can see that it was worth it. And that brings me to here, to today. Four months after my brother's passed, four months after my surgery, and I feel like I'm in the best place of my life. I feel empowered by my brother's passing. I feel like I need to do something so significant with my life that people are going to look and go, I listened to her and that made a difference. And because of you, Nicola, and I thank Graham for that. And I just hope that there through the series of my podcast that there are nuggets that you guys can take away and please do share that with me on my social media platforms I want to know that you know that hearing these vulnerable stories hearing the things that people went through that you can relate to and that know that you know this too shall pass and one day I can be there or I can make my dreams come true for every guest, I'm going to ask them the same question at the end of the podcast. And that advice, that um, question is, what advice would you give to your younger self? 
for me, there's two things that stand out. They're so clear. The first one is trust your intuition, your inner guidance system. Those nudges, that feeling, that is your truth. That is everything. That will lead you in the right direction of your life. Do not ignore it. And the second one is build your own self-worth and your own self-confidence before you get into any relationships, before you do anything, work on you. Having self-love and self-confidence and knowing your worth is everything. Once you have that, life is so much easier. I feel like once you get that, you can really be, do and have anything in life. And without that, life will always be a struggle, looking externally to find the answers, which ultimately lie within yourself and making yourself fully whole. Guys, it has been a pleasure sharing myself openly um, with you on my first ever episode on Inspire the Podcast. I'll see you next week for episode two. Thank you.